First Thessalonians chapter 2, if you'd make your way there. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Mark Twain made famous this line, you find a job you enjoy doing, you'll never have to what? Never work a day in your life. That's a lie and you know it. But we understand what he meant. I kind of caught this uh, many years ago when I was working in a factory, not one of those jobs. And my brother Larry came home. He was the pride of the family. He was number one. I was number eight out of nine in the train. And so we all looked up to Larry like he was like God. And uh, because he was just everything, everything he did was working for him. And he became a Big Ten referee and then an NFL referee. And he came home one time for Christmas and he was talking to the family. He says, you know, he says, I get paid for doing something I do for free. And I thought, ha, ha, I would never be able to say that. And then I got saved. And then I became a pastor. And I can say that now. I love the call of God in my life as a pastor. I truly do. It is work. It's hard work. And Paul's going to use some hard work, layman-type terminology in the passage we're going to look at. But when life as a pastor becomes overwhelming, and it does at times, I, we, the staff, the elders at Sailorville Church remind ourselves of the grace of God and the words of the Apostle Paul in passages like this. And what I want to do this morning is catch the context that Pastor Kurt preached on last week, not re-preach his message, but make my way to the text where he left off, beginning in verse 1, and listen to my emphasis here, will you? For you yourselves know, brothers... That our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle. Here come the metaphors. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our, also, our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, and this is the new portion Strong Greek words are our labor, our toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of, the, of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is not a particularly deep theological passage, but it is a deep, loving passage, is it not? 
And it's one of the most insightful ones when it comes to Paul's personal life as a pastor. So we're looking at Paul, the fatherly pastor this morning. Last week, Pastor Kurt called us to examine our own motives as he, as he dealt with the, the earlier section here, which is actually talking to the pastors and their motives. And this week, we're going to sort of turn it upon ourselves. That is, I am representing the other elders of Sailorville Church, sort of putting the focus, the mic, you know, the whole magnifying glass, so to speak, upon ourselves and ask you to examine us to see if, if we, if me, fit the image of a spiritual father. Now, if you've been with us, you know that Paul planted this church, according to Acts 17. He was there, for, the Bible says, for three Sabbaths. But if you were listening carefully, it's hard to believe somebody had a relationship with these people in just three weeks. There's, there's internal evidence. We don't have time to get to it, but there's internal evidence that he was more than three weeks, probably at least a couple of months. So the three weeks mentioned in Acts 17 probably is pro- probably that first initial evangelistic thrust when he went in there with the gospel, so to speak. Otherwise, it'd be hard to account for all of these endearing terms that Paul had toward these Thessalonians. And speaking of endearment, Paul uses terms of endearment as metaphors for his affection for the church. We saw it last week from Pastor Kurt. He likened himself to be a mother. And now he likens himself metaphorically as a father. So you've got tenderness and you've got toughness. You got them both. The mothering aspect is kind of unique. You don't have him doing that anywhere else. Although there is this interesting section in to the Galatians. If you remember, the Galatians were those who trusted, trusted Christ but were bent toward legalism. They kept going back to the law. And Paul said in Galatians 4.19, My little children in whom I labor in birth pangs until Christ is formed in you, until you look more like Jesus. So he likened himself not just to a mother but one that was nine and a half months pregnant. Because he wanted to see the formation of Jesus in his disciples in Galatia. And, but the father, the figure of a father is more prevalent in his life. He said it to the Corinthians who, he, who were constantly getting sidetracked with their own sins. He said, you, 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 could have, you could have a thousand teachers, but you only have one father. I fathered you in the gospel. Have you ever read that? That's in chapter 4, verse 15. And he's, he's speaking to Timothy and of Timothy in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2. He uses the word father in a simile. A simile is where you, a you know, figure of speech where you, uh, you, you, you make a comparison. He says, he says, Timothy was like a son and I was like a father to him. Years ago, an uh, older woman in our church approached me and said, I look to you as my father. I remember being sort of stymied by the comment. It was sobering, it was humbling, and it was also very encouraging all at the same time, sort of honoring. The Apostle Paul is probably in his 50s when he wrote to the Thessalonians. He's not a 20-something. You don't say that to a 20-something, right? His authority is actually increasing, but so is his humility, which is Really cool if you think about it. when that, that happens when spiritual growth and aging come together. That's a pretty cool thing, isn't it? Anybody ever met any older, immature people? Don't point. In fact, this, in a space of about 10 years, 
listen to how Paul described himself. And literally, this is in a space of less than 10 years. He, he described himself as the least of the apostles. That's pretty humbling, isn't it? A couple of years later, I am less than the least of all the saints. And just before he met the Roman Acts, he described himself as the chief of sinners. Now, that's the way you grow. Amen? Never losing his edge on his boldness, while at the same time upping his game in love. And a regular prayer of mine before God for over 30 years has been, Lord, make me more tender, but not less zealous for you. So Paul, the fatherly pastor, this passage helps us, helps you see the type of character to look for in a pastor. And I want to give you my own personal observations here as we sort of turn this back upon ourselves today. So you have a different vantage point today, okay? So let's get with it. The fatherly pastor. Here's the first thing. And I'm going to use the word out in every one of these uh, uh, statements. He takes the clock out of his schedule. If you notice in verse 9, he says, I labored amongst you night and day, probably referring to the fact that he was a tent maker. But probably, he, I mean, Paul was an advocate for taking care of pastors financially, but he himself was a tent maker. He didn't want to be a burden to anybody. And so he, it's possible that he worked during the day as a tent maker and at night as a, as a minister. This guy hardly ever slept. Now, to be clear... Every pastor has to have a schedule. You know, every sane pastor anyway. And if you're not sane, you have Lisa Johnson. So that's the way it works for me. <laughs> but all of our plans, no matter what they are, all of our plans have to have sort of built into them, sort of inculcated into them, uh, if the Lord wills. Now, we all should be like that, right? But more so the minister of God. They have to. I worked in the factory at John Deere. I hated my job. I liked the money. But I, I, I was a clock watcher. You know, if you're watching the clock, you either hate your job or it's just really boring, right? I remember working at UPS. That was the last secular job I had, working at UPS. And uh, I was a Christian going to Bible college at the time. It was at the end of the shift. And uh, at the shift, and I was in a trailer helping a guy get it cleaned up. He had a lot of mess in his trailer, and he was down in the pit, and I was in the front. And it was a great opportunity. I knew I'd be with him for 10, or 10 minutes or more, so I'm fervently sharing Christ with him. And, and his back is to me half the time, but I, I'm pretty sure he's interested. I don't know how you figure that out when somebody's back is to you half the time. But he literally turned toward me. He goes, dude, are you getting paid for this or something? And I can still remember this incredible joy I had to look at him and say, I'm not making a penny for this. You so need this, and I so want to give it to you. But ever since then, I've never been able to say that. I would have, anymore it'd be, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am getting paid for this. Oh, well. But I want to be able to say to you that I would do it if I wasn't getting paid. Don't be taking that as a hint for anything, Okay. <laughs> Ministry is not a place for those who watch the clock. And then again, a, a, a father, a good father isn't going to watch the clock with his kids. He doesn't care about the clock. And I'm here to say to you, your Sailorville church elders, your pastors are not watching the clock. We love you. And we're here for you 25-8 if necessary. 
Secondly, the fatherly pastor stands out for everyone to see. Did you catch, just in the reading of the text, did you catch all those phrases I emphasized? You yourselves know, you are witnesses, you remember over six times, six times Paul reminded them. And that's one of the reasons we know that he spent more than just three weeks with them. And what is he saying? I'm not hiding from you. I'm out there in front of you. You can see me. I can still remember when I candidated in 1998. I mean, this church put me through, I mean, literally, they put me through the grind. I was ex- absolutely exhausted by the end of the weekend. And after I preached my last message on Sunday night, I sat up here with Kevin Thomas, the chairman of the deacons, and took questions from the, uh, from the congregation. And one of the first questions was, are you going to have a presence here at church? I went, what? What kind of, qu- yes, of course I will. And what if, what if, what if you're not here? How can I get a hold? I said, well, I have a cell phone. You can get a hold of me anytime. And be careful with that one, too, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> but I found out later there was something to that. I mean, there, there, was a, there was a former pastor that just wasn't available, that wasn't around, didn't stand out, couldn't be seen. Years ago, I was arrested, literally arrested by a line that's also very instructive. In 1 Timothy 3, there are these qualifications. Of, that's where you're going to find the qualifications of pastor and of a deacon, too. But here's the line. I give it to you. He must have a good testimony among those who are, say it. I got news for you. That's not a Christian he's talking about there. Those who are outside aren't the people who are waiting to get into the third service here, okay? Those who are outside are outsiders to the house of faith. They're outsiders. Some of you who are still, you're here physically, but you're outside spiritually. And he's saying you've got to have a good testimony. And I, this is, and I got to think, how does a pastor establish a good testimony with outsiders? I mean, isn't the whole point for me to be a, inside with you? I, I, I sat with a missionary in my very first year of ministry. I sat with a missionary. I was 28 years old. He took me out for coffee. He said, I'm in this country church. He says, Numbers, he said, if you're going to get these people to trust you, you've got to be here at least five years. In my mind, I thought two or three will do. I mean, it's a little church, man. I don't know if it was aspiration. I don't know if it was pride. I don't know if it was ambition that was going on in my heart. I thought, five years? That's an eternity in a country church. And you know what? Ended up being there 12. And I can still remember in the fifth year thinking, yeah, I think these people actually trust me now. So to answer the question, how does a pastor establish a testimony with outsiders if it takes five years to get the insiders to trust him? And the answer in a word is time time. I tell people who fall away from the Lord for whatever reason, time plus obedience equals trust. So don't think if you've had a fall in your life or in a serious one of that, you're going to get the trust back overnight. It's going to take time plus obedience equals trust. And we've been counseling people like that for years. It's still true. I had somebody come up to me just an hour ago and say, that has held true in my life. Somebody had a major fall several years ago. And it just gave me great joy to see the restoration of this man. But that's not just true of somebody who falls. That's just true of a pastor in general. Time plus an obedient life equals the people's trust. And in this case, outsiders who see us constantly milling about the community, being in and out of stores and coffee shops and whatever. And he says in verse 10, they're to be holy and righteous and blameless. You talk about high standards. 
We're going through year-end evaluations right now. All 25 people who are getting paid for, including the elders. I'm getting mine here in just a couple of days. And if, look, if I'm sweating it during this evaluation, I'm probably not, you know, living up to these standards. Just the other day, a, a young man that I mentor, I mentor several young pastors across the country, and so I won't tell you where it is. It's in the United States, this young guy. Uh, took a church not long ago, just before COVID hit, a church that formerly had 7,000 people regularly attending, 7,000. There are 1,000 right now. So he came in to sort of rescue this deal. And he's a capable guy. I'm believing he's going to, I'm so jacked for this guy. He's a dear brother. But he comes in and then COVID hits. And he, so what happens is he's got to give a lot of his time just to the, the leadership and the other pastors. And he finds out in the space of Three weeks, not one pastor, not two pastors, but three of them have been involved in pornography up to their eyeballs, literally. And they're all out as God is using this man to clean house. And I can tell you that over the years in this church, in the Engage, the Greater Engage Network, all six churches, we take God's standards seriously. And we've had to say goodbye to those who don't meet them. And this is, by the way, this is one of my favorite expressions. Because remember, my point here in this is is that that fatherly pastor stands out to all. I I want you to see the the eighth verse. Just look, I put it up on the board for you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. This is my favorite part in the chapter. But also our own selves. We are out there for you to see. Powerful. Thirdly. The fatherly pastor ministers out of every season of his life. And that's not easy to do. Paul said to Timothy, while he was waiting for the Roman chopping block, he said, Timothy, preach the word in season and what? Out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine because the time is coming when men will no longer endure sound doctrine but will heap up for themselves people who just want to have their ears tickled. Know any churches like that? So <laughs> preach the word in season and out of season. It's a great line. But I'm going to tell you right now as a pastor, it's not an easy one to pull off. We have off-seasons, just like you. We're human beings. And yet, we're called to minister no matter what's happening in our lives. Good, bad, or other. Mountaintop experiences are down in the valley. We are called to minister. I can still remember one day sitting in my office, and a mother was right across from me. And she was just pouring out her heart. I mean, she had a kid that was off the rails and she's talking to me like I have no clue as to what she's going through. And I got a couple of sons that could rival anything her kid was doing at the same time. In fact, I looked down while she's talking to me, while she's pouring out her heart, and I wasn't feeling real pastoral in the moment. I looked down, and I saw my phone, and it was the principal of the local high school calling. The principal of the local high school and I became friends for all the wrong reasons during those days. And I knew why he was calling me. I didn't answer it. But I just, I'm just dying inside. And I didn't feel very pastoral. And I wanted to say to this lady, lady, do you realize I've got it 10 times worse than you? I didn't. 
In fact, the Spirit of God spoke to me very powerfully in the moment and said, I know that you're hurting right now, but that woman needs your help. Can you minister for me out of your heart? And as God helped me, that's what I did. Paul is hurting. And ministers don't choose the seasons of life in which they're going to give themselves to God's people. Look at it again, the first couple of verses. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, and he goes on, he had been under distress. He'd been harried out of Thessalonica. He was under pressure. These people were under pressure. Paul was ministering to these people out of his hurt. And I would say this to all of you who know God, and I want you to see this. I want you to memorize it even, although it's lengthy. Some of the greatest opportunities to glorify God in heaven will occur during some of your greatest struggles here on earth. Some of your greatest opportunities to glorify God in heaven will come during some of your greatest struggles you experience here on earth, if you believe that. The pastor has to live that way, the one who's worth his salt anyway. The fatherly pastor, and this is fourthly, pours out from the overflow of his heart, very closely aligned here. Fathers and mothers are, are the metaphors here. Now, my, my dad, my dad was tough. He was loud. I don't know where I got that from. But he was incredibly affectionate. I can still remember. This is really silly, I know. But I can still remember getting up to go to bed one night. I don't remember how. Maybe I was 8, maybe I was 10. And my dad said something like, bring it in, Patrick. He expected me to give him a kiss. And I shook his hand. I shook my dad's hand. How dumb is that? But I saw his countenance drop. It so disappointed him. I guess I was just, you know, too grown up. But I wasn't so growing up that I didn't want his touch when I was a senior in high school when I got beat in the state championship series and I knew my career was over. I could care less what anybody else was doing or was saying to me. I was dismissing everything. And then I felt my dad's hand on my shoulder. And when my wife died, my dad's touch gave me permission to cry. Touching me with his strong hand as he communicated with me the overflow of his broken heart for his son. I often remind our pastors that ministry is about people. And when it ceases to be about people, get out! You're not to be here anymore. And we minister from the overflow of our hearts. Fifthly, the fatherly pastor comes out 
He comes out to encourage God's people. Now, Paul uses in verse 12 three terms. They're, they're terms worth underlining, noting at least. They're different words, different nuances in the Greek, but they're kind of synonymous in their meaning. Yet they're sort of, they're sort of incrementally increasing or with their intensity. It's the word encourage. It's, it, it's, it's translated exhorted, encouraged, and charged. You see the words there? The word exhorted there is the word, that's the word we're most used to in the New Testament. Parakaleo, para is the prefix, which means to be alongside. Kaleo means to call, literally to call or to come alongside in order to encourage. Now, Paul uses the word encourage one way or another 50 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. That makes it important. Ten times in these two epistles here. Again, it means to come alongside. But the context is going to determine the meaning, the thrust, the emphasis, the intensity, or the gentleness of the encouragement. So if you just look over a page, chapter 5 and verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idols, the idol that is, encourage the what? The faint-hearted. There's the same word encourage. Now, we know that that some, some of your Bibles probably translate it console. That would be a good translation of the same word. You know, you lose a loved one, you don't need somebody coming in hot saying, buck up, you're a Christian. I got to tell you, this is something kind of funny. I mean, this wasn't funny at the time. But uh, my wife, my first wife had been gone, had gone to heaven like three weeks earlier. Three weeks earlier. But just prior to her death, this guy by the name of Dean, he was the coolest guy. He was a brand new Christian, just on fire for God. He'd come up with this great idea. We're going we're gonna to have a, he said, Pastor, I got, I got this idea. We're going to go to the local park over here. We're going to invite everybody to come. We're going to have some games, and then you're going to let them have it with the gospel. Sounds like a pretty good idea. So we planned it. It was like a little, kind of a little uh, evangelistic outreach. And all the plans were made, and then my wife died. And uh, so we is like, it's like two and a half weeks later. Uh, and he comes up to me and he says, hey, I mean, how long are we going to wait on this thing anyway? Let's get going on this. I mean, I'm looking at him like, are you kidding me? And yet, as upset as I was, there was a reality to his exhortation, to his encouragement. He, there was a sense in which he was going to say, it's time to get back to living. <laughs> I thought, well, I, I kind of do the same thing, don't I? But I don't you know, I wait a little longer than you do. Fatherly pastors have to do both. We have to comfort and confront. The context of a life is what depends and determines the kind of encouragement you're going to get. But it works both ways. I mean, just the other day, I received a text from a, a woman in our church who texted these words, the Lord has laid you on my heart. How can I pray for you? What can I do for you? I can't tell you how grateful I was for that text. That she was, and I, and it was a, it was a time where I needed prayer. It was a very timely thing. But the fatherly pastor can't do that kind of encouragement. Can't come out to encourage unless he's been out amongst the people of God and knows them. And all of these things are sort of implicit. Uh, determinations, commitments, and re-upping our commitments to you. And I'm, again, speaking on behalf of the rest of the guys. Sixthly, the fatherly pastor looks out for lurking enemies. 
I'm, I'm capitalizing on the last of that trio of words there where he says exhorted, encouraged, and then he says charged. See that word charged? That's, that word charged is a charged word. I told you they all have sort of, they're sort of nuanced differently. Uh, it's a powerful word. It means to solemnly testify. It's the idea of pointing somebody in the right direction, confronting them, making it look. Well, here, Acts chapter 20. Paul, before the Ephesian elders, just before he left them, he'd been there for, 20, for three years. He says to me, he says, testifying, there's the word, diamorturimai. Our word martyr comes from this word. Diamorturimai, thoroughly testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the only way anybody ever gets saved, by the way. You repent toward God, you put your faith in Jesus, that's how you get saved. But he's not done because he's concerned that something's going to happen after he leaves these Ephesians. And here are the words. Look at this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. By the way, great proof text for the deity of Jesus. God paid for it with his blood. Don't miss that one. That's free, by the way. That wasn't in my notes. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you in tears. Those are strong words. And a fatherly pastor is always looking out for the lurking enemies that are trying to creep in, inside, outside. And I, I, look, I know who I am. I'm the exhorter. I'm that guy who comes at you. I get it, okay? I say hard things and sometimes hard to take hard things. But that also just sets me up to have to receive hard things, and I get it in spades sometimes, deservedly so. And I know that Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm here to build you up, not tear you down. And that is my heart. But there are times, are there not, where you have to tear something down before you build something up. Can I get three amens out of that? The enemies today are legion. And even within the church, the enemies of worldliness, materialism, and immaturity in the midst of this current crisis that we're living in, where people think and do things that all that says to me is, where is your head? Is it stuck in the sand? Do you not know who you are? Are you a Christian? And then just horrible theology that draws in unsuspecting Christians. I mean, listen, just last night, my wife, I was watching part of the football game, and this commercial came up. You can get an inspiration cube from Joel for 40 bucks. What a deal. Please don't buy it. Please. Oh, you're being so judgmental, Pastor. No, I'm just trying to be a shepherd, a fatherly one who's trying to keep you away from those who are heretics, who don't preach the gospel. And finally, the fatherly pastor points out the calling in which we are called. I just want to throw it up there again. This is how he caps it off. I'm doing all this. I'm trying to get you to, I'm encouraging you. I'm exhorting you. I'm charging you. 
to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's what we're trying to do. Point you to God, to his gospel, which is referred to repeatedly in this chapter, and his ways for your worthy walk to be more people, more like Jesus. And so that you will look beyond the circumstances that you are so stuck in, so many of you are stuck in and sidetracked in, to the kingdom of God. Stop, get your heads out of the sand, and look for Jesus. He's coming again. And I I know some of you are thinking, don't you realize this election, the whole whole country is going to go down to hell in a handbasket. Who do you think you are anyway? You're supposed to be a Christian if you are one, and I'm not assuming you all are. But if you're a Christian, get your head out of the sand. Get your head above these circumstances. Look at the living God whose son is coming back, and these epistles urge us to do so. His kingdom come, amen? His will be done on earth like it is in heaven. Is there more to a fatherly pastor than this? Yes, certainly, but there's not less. There's not less. And speaking of, I mean, calls, you see that word calls there? The saving, there's a saving call of God. And the saving call of God is this, uh, this, this tractor beam, this inexorable tractor beam that just pulls you in. And some of you know it. You've heard the gospel. You desire it. You believe that Jesus died for you, but you haven't, you haven't accepted him into your life. You need to do that. You can sense God pulling you in. This is the call of God that Romans speaks of as well. And it, it's that inexorable tractor beam that pulls you into his kingdom. But the word calls here is actually present tense. It's like an ongoing kind of a thing. And here's the point. Don't miss it. The God who, and I'm talking to you that are Christians right now, the God who pulled you in is the same God who will continue to pull you along. You can trust him. Assuming you've answered the original call. Have you? My family, I have, like I said, eight brothers and sisters, and they're all alive and we get together every two weeks through Zoom. I see my family more than I ever saw them before. So praise God for COVID. And I'm seeing my family all the time. And every time somebody is given the task of coming up with a subject to, that we could all talk about so it isn't just a, you know, a circus because when a bunch of numbers get together, yeah, that's another story. So it's kind of worked out well. So a lot of times it's like, you know, some memory. And we, oftentimes we talk about my dad, my father. And one of the memories I have is at supper time in the Nemer's house, you never missed supper time. You, you better, be, you're big trouble if you miss supper time. Because we all got together for supper. And I can remember playing out around the neighborhood, and my sister would open up the door and she'd say, Pat, Bob, come in. And we'd just ignore her. 
My brother Mike would then about five minutes later, Pat, Bob, come on in. We ignore him too. But when my dad stuck his head out that, that door, we dropped whatever we were doing. And we ran as quickly as we could to get to that supper table. The Father is calling. He's calling some of you to supper, to sit down with his son Jesus and enjoy an eternity of love and fellowship with the living God. Yes, while you're here on earth and then beyond. And he'll get you through this because the same God, to those of you who know who pulled you in, is the same God who will pull you along during this life. Amen? And for those of you who have never received Jesus Christ, answer the call from the Father. Let's pray. That's our prayer, God. Thanks for the privilege to be able to turn the lens around, focus it on what fatherly pastors are to be like. And I know, Lord, that I'm, I'm not that guy. Sometimes I'm probably uh, a disappointment to many. But I don't, wanna be di- I don't want to uh, disappoint you. I know I have. To whatever degree I have, I ask your forgiveness, Lord, and pray that others would do the same for me and the rest of the pastors. We're not perfect. We're, we mess up, and, but we want to please you and be fatherly pastors in season and out of the seasons of our lives. I pray, God, that your this irresistible call has been received in this room to trust Jesus as Savior. And if that's you, dear friend, you've, you feel it. You feel, I'm not a Christian. I know about this, but it's not real in my life. I want to believe that Jesus died and rose again for me. Would you just, from your heart, accept him, repent to God of your sin, and turn to Jesus right now in your heart? Encourage the rest of your people today, Lord, And to know that some of the greatest opportunities that will afford them in this world will be during some of the greatest struggles they're having to honor you. And be assured that you who pulled them in will take them along. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.